Hello, and welcome to Sounding Out with Izzy, the podcast where we have conversations with musicians, music producers, publicists, live promoters, zine makers, journalists, and more about their experiences working in the music industry as women, non-binary, and queer people. I'm your host, Isabel Corp the founder of the Queer Femme music-based blog and YouTube channel, A Girl's Two Sound Sense. Today, I welcome Reagan Seeley to the studio, an indie soul singer, poet, and teacher based in Brooklyn, New York. In addition to being a songwriter, Reagan is also an award-winning advocate and teaching artist. In 2017, she launched a nonprofit organization advocating for music and creative writing, as a healing tool for marginalized communities, which was supported by Lady Gaga's Born This Way Foundation. Reagan and I dive into how art can heal traumatized communities, as well as our issues with the nonprofit industrial complex, and how a mice infestation in Reagan's old apartment, as well as the end of a relationship, inspired one of her recent singles, Killing Song. As usual, I would like to remind listeners that I am paying for the podcast out of pocket, so if you would like to help me continue to create more episodes and maybe buy me a coffee as well, please consider donating to or checking out my Patreon at patreon.com backslash a girl's two sound sense. That's girl with three R's and no I. Those who join my Patreon will get to unlock bonus content, including music-based film reviews with special guests, unheard and unedited conversations in podcast episodes, playlists curated by yours truly, as well as early access to some of my YouTube content. However, I understand that finances are tight for many people, so if you are unable to join the Patreon, I fully understand. All I ask is that you give the podcast a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, as that really helps me out in my effort to get the podcast in front of more people. And without further ado, let's get right into this episode. All right, so I am going to ask you your name what time it is and where you are. My name is Reagan Seeley. It is 3.08 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and I am in a cute little neighborhood called Cobble Hill in Brooklyn, New York. Yes, and we were just talking about how Cobble Hill is a very nice, quaint uh, area of Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. It is. It's full of gorgeous old brownstones and little Italian bakeries and right by the river as well it's yeah super beautiful super quiet and like a a really lovely retreat from Manhattan you're particularly reminded of that by the fact you can like see Manhattan across the river and you're like yeah I'm glad I'm like not I'm 15 minutes from the craziness but not in the craziness it's a good separation Absolutely. And I also know that you're a major Arctic Monkeys fan. And as we were talking about earlier, sort of off mic, uh, you said that what you love is that every record sort of sounds different. So what would you say like is a big thing that you take away from their sort of oeuvre that really inspires you? 
Mm. Storytelling. I think that's what it is. And that's how every record is so different is it, it tells a different story and it has a different setting and a different bunch of characters and uh, it's followed through with no inhibitions, just very truthfully and fully in each one. Yeah. Each one is, is a, is a truthful, just an honest story and a whole story. For sure. And fartsy, fartsy answer, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So here's the thing I wanted to share with you that completely blew my mind that I noticed recently. So obviously, you know, this song. really chugging guitars like we're we're both like breaking our necks just like head banging <laughs> but do you re- remember this song i heard it again recently feel like making love by bad company I'd never made that connection. Wow. Neither have I. Like, that's that's insane. But I, I love how you can sort of like... Uh, that's the cool thing about music theory, too, is you can always trace back something like uh, with a similar tempo or whatever that'll sound so familiar to so uh, with so many hits. It's awesome to be able to make those connections and to like have a, a wide enough knowledge of music to be able to draw those those connections. But it's also kind of terrifying because it makes you every idea you have, you're like, did I come up with that though? Or like, have I heard that somewhere? And I'm just not remembering where it was. I wonder yeah. if Alex Turner has has cited, you know, or, or credited his influence there. Or if, yeah, how, how often is it that you you are technically plagiarizing something and you don't even know it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how often that happens. Not just in music, in everything creative. You know, you think, where are your ideas coming from? Yeah. Definitely. And even like when you will watch like a film or a series and people might either like do something that's like shot by shot, like a very very close to something that has been done and then you might look into it and realize it was an homage to this piece of the past or maybe it was just a total coincidence and yeah 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 as as humanity kind of progresses that's going to happen more and more (laughs) and now we have the internet so we can look it up and we can know like, oh, yeah, that is definitely plagiarized. You definitely saw that somewhere. And maybe you just don't remember seeing it. But like the image was in your head or the chord progression or the rhyme, whatever it was. Yeah. And so I guess to get started on a little bit of your background from what I've read and heard from you, it seems like you've always had a very visceral and emotional connection to music. And I was wondering if You can recall one of the earlier periods in your life where music really emotionally just triggered something within you. Mm. I I don't know if I remember like a first instance of being 
I love the word triggered, being triggered by music. It's something that I definitely am. And yeah, a visceral connection is some a visceral reaction is something I definitely have to music. I think that's always been the case. And I think I grew up with a very strange kind of soundtrack in my house. And like I was very into Simon and Garth when I was about four. <laughs> and but also ABBA and also Michael Jackson. And I remember always since I can remember talking, wanting to sing and singing, I think I probably used to sing before I could talk. And my version of singing at that age was more like a kind of squeal. But one of the one of my earliest, earliest memories as a kid is leaning out my bedroom window very, very early in the morning when I thought no one else was awake so that I could like sing in, in what I felt was privacy. <laughs> it probably wasn't. But yeah, the idea of like singing into a street where nobody was up yet and no one could hear me just to sing. Not because anyone was listening. In fact, because because nobody was listening. Yeah, I've, I've always experienced music as like the height of manifesting human emotions. Like there's writing and there's moving, dancing, acting, telling stories. But music, is it seems to come from another realm it doesn't make any sense, right? It's just noises. It's just sounds. It's just like frequencies. But the the effect it has on you, whether you understand even why, you, can, you can't explain to a four-year-old why a sad song is sad. They know. Instinctively, you know. This sounds sad and it makes me feel sad. And it's just like a, a vibrational reaction to something. Absolutely. And you've been writing verse poetry for a long time, which is definitely like very interconnected with rap and hip hop. And you've been very vocal before about how rap saved your life. And I was wondering if you'd like to share any particular stories about your connection to that art form and how it's helped you throughout life. Yes, my TED talk was called How Rap Saves Lives. It was not titled by me. It was kind of a clickbaity title. But I think it's true. Yeah, I never learned any instruments growing up. The only instrument I had was my voice and I couldn't like read or write music. So as much as I wanted to like musically express myself, I I was kind of limited with the means I had to do so. And I think discovering rap and hip hop, definitely discovered rap and hip hop before I discovered poetry. I don't know if that's the way it goes for for most people, but to me, it was like the most accessible way of articulating that thing that thing that music does that is that comes from somewhere else and allows you to to tell a story and connect to another human being that way like it's somehow more like truthful and immediate than even maybe like an, a, a normal song or a speech or a monologue or a novel or a play or a movie or any other way that you could like use your words to communicate that framework of like sitting in a rhyme and having a beat allows you to free associate, but keeps you in a structure so that you have to kind of concentrate, you have to focus on something. And it means it's not the widest view of an emotion and not the not the most comprehensive way of of contextually presenting something, but it's it's a very condensed and like reduced experience of a feeling, which makes it very emotive and very pointed and very like. I think that's definitely my style as a lyricist and as a person I hear from friends is, is I'm very to the point. 
and and that especially as far as music goes rap and hip-hop I think for me probably get to the point the quickest and therefore allow you to make many points in in a single song even and I'm probably rambling now which is actually I think despite the fact that there are many more lyrics within a a rap or a hip-hop song than in a, than in a, any other kind of music traditionally I feel that they are less rambly they actually allow you to really pinpoint your ideas in a way that more abstract lyricism doesn't always allow for does that answer the question <laughs> it's not really yeah as definitely expression. yeah as, as a means of expression that anyone can do you don't have to be able to play a guitar or or anything you just have to know words <laughs> then you have you have access to that and and it's a, a super helpful way of dealing with the condition of being human and connecting to other humans with the same condition <laughs> yeah and would you say that that's something that you incorporate into a lot of your teaching as well yes absolutely creative writing kind of creative expression in general but especially creative writing and especially rap and hip hop are tools that I've found super helpful for working with disengaged, traumatized, vulnerable communities, especially young people that struggle to find words or ways to connect with others, that there's a type of front or medium that hip hop or or writing allows you that makes it somehow easy to talk about difficult things or easier to talk about difficult things and even you can even, especially with hip hop and especially with like younger men, younger boys, it's like a way of being vulnerable that doesn't affect your like bravado. <laughs> even vulnerability can like become cool if it's delivered in this medium. Super powerful as a tool. Yeah, that's very true. I never really thought of it that way because a lot of hip-hop gets still I don't know derided and demonized for Mm -hmm. the bravado aspect but that's in every single genre that's that's prevalent in every single genre of music like I'm honestly to be honest I'm more threatened by the indie rock dudes who pose (laughs) as sensitive when they really aren't than the (laughs) Than the dudes who perform this like hyper boys with their guitars. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the ones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess really it's all it all comes back to self-awareness. Uh, but all of it, what you have to remember as well, whether you are experiencing from a song, whatever the genre, whether you're experiencing bravado or vulnerability or whatever from the performer, it is a performance. Yes. So you can never really be sure what level of self-awareness there is in that performance. But yeah, that's interesting. You're right. Those are the dangerous ones. <laughs> and in addition to performing, you're also a big advocate. And also, as we said, you're also teaching creative writing. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the nonprofit organization that you launched in 2017 and what its mission is. Yes, in 2017, it's a long time ago. And so the, the, the nonprofit I launched was called Soundboard. 
and it ran workshops like those in rap and hip hop, creative writing, music for free in various places around New York City. It obviously stopped in 2020 when everything else stopped. And then when it became obvious that it wasn't two weeks to slow the spread, which is what they told us in March, I I can't remember when exactly I closed it down. It was either late 2020 or early 2021. I think it was probably late 2020. Because I realized by that point, it had been three, it'd been running for three years. And I had become, this is the thing with working in in the nonprofit realm, I had become a, a nonprofit CEO and not a teaching artist. Or the ratio of teaching artist to nonprofit CEO had been completely skewed. And I wanted to perform and I wanted to teach. And I found myself instead spending most of my time doing admin or evaluation forms or project planning or mostly fundraising to try to pay for these workshops. And this is a thing, this is a a really toxic culture that's present in both music and any nonprofit work, that it's very easy to feel incredibly guilty for wanting to make enough money to like pay rent or eat. (laughs) Because everyone's like, well, isn't the the work is the reward? It's like, yeah, the 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 work is for sure rewarding. This is what I would like to do. I want to run these workshops. I want to perform. I also would like somewhere to live and would not be would like to not be worrying about how I'm paying my bills this month. Because actually, while I'm worrying about those things, I'm finding it very hard to show up in my is as my best self to anything else I'm doing, which is kind of basic, just Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But yeah, there's a real, you'll notice when you look, even if you're you're looking to work for somebody else's nonprofit, like the salaries are always so low, money is tight with everything they do. And it is, it's it feels like frowned upon to be to be like, you know, I live in New York City and like rent here is a lot of money. And like I can't live on that. And I don't have a partner or four roommates or parents who are like propping me up. So yeah, I the the nonprofit is not running anymore, but what has changed since 2020, I guess actually now I so I ran it for 3 years and it's now nearly been 3 years since I stopped running it. And in that time I've built up a career as an artist and teaching artist that sustains me well enough financially that I'm able to go and run workshops for free and actually have bigger impact and be creating work myself and showing up in a much healthier and in a much more constructive way because I am, yeah, not depressed and anxious all the time because of money. So it's it's been a learning curve. <laughs> the mission remains. The mission is to just bring, you know, access to creativity and these tools that they give you to navigate this world to more people and to the people that need them. And I thought the way to do that was to launch a nonprofit. And I, you know, it was a learning curve to realize that perhaps it's not. Perhaps running an organization is a completely different skill set to just being an artist or being a teacher. Definitely. And I understand where you're coming from because I used to do contract work for a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And what made me leave was the fact that it wasn't sustaining me, not just financially, but emotionally as well. And learning how nonprofits operate from an administrative point of view, and also from a financial standpoint. Before that, I wasn't really attuned to the nonprofit industrial complex. Mm -hmm. And that was very 
disheartening to learn, but I think realizing that I'm worth more than that was definitely a big step up to realizing what I actually want to do, you know? Yeah. And what I'm worth (laughs) because that's important as well. Yes. What, yeah. What you are worth. It's, it's a real, it's a really odd industry for that because everyone there is trying to do good and you understand that, but there's also this, this, this unique, like clickiness to it. You always feel like you're competing with other projects, you know, even when you win a big grant or something, you're like, oh, that's great. But then because I won this grant, these other like three projects who are also doing amazing work didn't get it. And those programs now aren't going to run. And it's all just a bit like a, you know, feeding the sharks. And yeah, it's, it's very complex. And I could, I could talk about this for hours on, on the podcast. (laughs) Yeah. glad You got out. And I'm, I am so glad as well, not to be working in in the nonprofit industry. I not to say that I don't do nonprofit work and I do I still I still I do a lot of social impact consulting as well at the moment but like the yeah trying to like scrabble for this for funding and for placements and and constantly prove the value of what you're doing to other people who are writing the checks like it's it's extremely demoralizing. Mm. And it's a whole job. Doing that is the yeah. whole job. You forget what you're trying to actually, what the program is. Yeah. You know, do teaching or music or whatever. Like there's the whole admin thing is just a monster in and of itself. Crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And there's the corporate sponsors who are like allowing you to obtain these grants and sort of like dangling the carrot in front of all of you being like, I decide which one of your programs gets to advance. It's like, it's really toxic. And I'm just like, I remember like being in that world and being like, this is like, this is, yeah, it is. uh." (laughs) It's like, it was a bit of a culture shock for me as well. Like coming from the UK, which is like compared to the US, I feel like the UK is like a socialist country and we do apply for grants there, but a lot of it is government funding and it's decided by people who were like put in their jobs for the, in people who people are deciding where the money goes. It's not their money, mm-hmm. you know, whereas here there's like you say, yeah, it's either corporate sponsors or there's a lot of private foundations or just wealthy people. And it's great. The culture of philanthropy and of giving in the US is huge and that's really important but is that a way to like basically deliver social services which is what a lot of <laughs> these nonprofits are doing right this this should be a government funded thing not a privately funded thing and we yeah. shouldn't be trying to prove the value of this to anyone it's uh, yeah i could go on <laughs> but i won't i'm i'm really glad to be i'm really happy i had that experience i learned a lot we did some amazing programming and I'm also, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in a good spot now as well, having been through that. Are you touring at the moment? No, or- I have not toured since before COVID and I, I'm just starting to perform again now. I can't, I still keep looking at the calendar and thinking, is it 2023? That feels the last three years to me just feel like they've flown by. My last gig was like mid-March 2020. It was at TED Ed and everything obviously closed down. And then I spent a lot of time back in the UK. I was recording. I was filming some videos while I was there. I've essentially kind of been hiding away and 
and working and I'm just now coming out of my shell and so excited to start performing again because I miss it so much. It's such a big part of my identity and like so crucial for my mental health. And it's different. It's a different scene to the one I left. Mm. Absolutely. How do you feel the climate has changed since the the lockdown restrictions were lifted? I'm trying to be careful about how I use language in this scenario because like I I feel like a lot of us tend to talk about it as if the pandemic is over, (laughs) which isn't true. (laughs) But how do you feel it's it's changed? I know like that the touring industry is operating very differently now because there's a lot of difficulties in the way with the context of COVID. Yeah, I guess I wouldn't really know how it's changed. I haven't got back into it enough. And I'm also coming back like when I was touring before and I was performing all over the place, I was doing a lot more poetry and spoken word and rap and conferences and teaching and stuff. Whereas now I'm coming back with music and not with a band either. It's like just me. So I'm kind of entering a new arena myself anyway. I would hope if anything, it's changed for the better, not the worse. But yeah, I think there's the issues that that have always been in live music are probably still there. Um, Yeah. How do you think it's changed? That's a good question. I have not been in a band or been a road dog in my entire life. So I only can gather information based on what my friends have told me. And a good friend of mine who just set off on another U.S. tour wrote a guest essay for my website, which was very nice of her. But here's something really great that she says. If you follow the industry at all, You are probably also aware of the issues and lack of support in touring right now, but don't fret. It might seem bleak from the outside, but touring can also be extremely beautiful. My most palpable memories of touring are never of the greasy food or the backaches from driving all day. It's the new friends in the audience, the goofy moments between me and my bandmates, the incredible people and pets that graciously allow us to stay in their homes, the venues that go out of their way to support traveling artists, and the amazing musicians we are fortunate enough to play with. So I think right now there's there's obviously, and this has, and I I think I can say with enough confidence that this has always been the case when it comes to bands who are not signed to a major label or indie artists. There has never been enough support delegated to those artists. They have to rent their own vehicles and power them up and have their friends drive them all night and have their people in their camp volunteer to do merch for them. There's never any sort of industry delegated assistance to people who aren't these huge, huge, huge pop stars, Yeah, you know, and that sucks. And then when you add on top of it, the risk of exposing people to COVID Mm -hmm. uh, just adds another layer to the difficulty of it. But in spite of all of that, people still understand the vitality and necessity of getting to see whatever country you might be touring in or getting to see different parts of the world and connect with other people through music. 
because that's definitely also important. Like, I think that a major chunk of what made music so special was definitely gutted and taken away when touring was not viable anymore during lockdown. And obviously, like, people need to be careful and take care of each other and always be testing and make sure you don't get sick. But I'm really glad that that is sort of coming back now because obviously touring isn't the most cost effective, but that connection is very important. But anyway, I'm I'm rambling. That probably doesn't answer the question of how it's necessarily changed, but... I do I think that's a, the good thing, though. The final point you made is the way it's changed for the better, if I can see one, is that there's more of an appreciation now for live music because it was gone for so long. And that energy of like, you know, it's still even now there's been live gigs back for a while, but just the the energy of being in a space with other people experiencing live music is something I think people have this newfound gratitude for that we'd perhaps lost a little bit. And there's an increased like respect for the other the first live gig I saw after COVID was like this time last year and it was in like a standing venue. And I was amazed by how much like space everybody was giving each other. And I think I was, I was kind of worried that wouldn't be the case, but yeah, people are respectful. They mask up. We have hand sanitizer. People give each other space and people also just appreciate being there. Those are all good things. Yeah, absolutely. And they're all very necessary for, especially like navigating just, I feel like life in general, it's just, it's, there's so much happening that we would all love to forget just for two seconds, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think live music is a great way to just sort of really just rage and just, and party and just forget about all the collective trauma that we're still in a long, in long-term recovery from, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And what would you say your thoughts are on the current state of being a performer? Do you think music has, might for in terms of visibility for women and LGBTQ plus artists, do you think that it's gotten better or do you think it's still a work in progress or do you think it's more of the same? I think the both of the your first options are true. It has definitely gotten better. It's also still a work in progress. Maybe the last one as well. It's also still much more of the same. But definitely, if you think back to even 2017, yeah, that, that seems so long ago now that I feel like huge changes happen all the time and you don't really realize until you look back and try to really remember how things were and the kind of culture that existed. That's even, po when was Me Too? 2017? You know, yeah. even that has influenced the the music industry hugely. Yeah, so it definitely has gotten better. And I think it will continue to go that way. I think ev every creative industry, but particularly music, is diversifying in a really interesting way. And there are so many sub, sub, sub genres of, of, of everything and including types of performers the internet kind of allows for that, that there there really is a space and an audience for everybody. And that's, it makes things maybe a lot more 
like decentralized. <laughs> but is that a bad thing? Maybe not. You know, it's a bigger pool with lots more little collections of fishes. It's not kind of, if you think even, you know, 20, 30 years ago, people competing to just be on radio. And there was a certain kind of music that would be on the radio. And then a very large amount of music that just never would be. Mm. We don't have that anymore. You know, we have we have online radio stations, YouTube channels, podcasts, social media, like whatever you are making, there will be an audience for it. So that works well for everybody, not just women and the LGBTQ community. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's also a really great thing about what the internet has provided, especially for audiences. A lot of people who sort of bemoan the death of the record industry that happened in like that was sort of gutted in like late 90s to early 2000s when Napster and digital file sharing started becoming the predominant form of consumption that people are like oh this that I mean obviously like streaming could use some work but what's great about so good the record industry (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) but like I think it's also great that we have this visibility now and there's so many pools and subgenres of subgenres of subgenres that we can just that we all have at our fingertips now and I think that's ultimately a good thing. I think there when it comes to ch- treating music as a commodification, I think a lot of this can get like really muddied and really weird when it comes to I guess, I guess what is ultimately like sharing art and like that there's, and there's so many debates among like the, among like the ethics of copyright law and stuff like that, which I could go on and on and on about because, and I feel like even I still don't even know enough about like the legality end of things, but it's, I think it's really cool what the internet has done for music ultimately. Would you say so? Yeah, I know there's this amazing rapper who's who what well, used to be based in New York, but is now in LA. And in fact, she used to be called LA. Her name's Latasha Alsendor. And she is just like a genius. I'm pretty sure she owns her masters. She makes really great money from her music on her terms with no label or nothing. And the in- that would not be possible without the internet. None of that. So like, I think there's probably like innovation like that. Who would have seen NFTs coming, right? Like <laughs> there's probably innovations and things coming down the line that we cannot even imagine right now, but it all does make it more democratic. Like if you want to get online and start creating a business and selling your own, ma- own your masters, sell your, your copyright to people, do your own licensing, you can go and learn how to do that. And you can be a label yourself. That definitely was not the case. Maybe even 10 years ago, that was not the case. So it's it's all changing so quickly. And you can argue it's it's worse for some people, it's better for for others. Like I, I think on the whole, probably the opportunities are are there and are more diverse. You just have to kind of go and, and look for them. And that's the other thing I think like that the internet has done and just the kind of collapse of these centralized systems of like what is obviously we still have mainstream music, but like 
that, that there isn't just one way to be a musician now is that the less and less is there like one way to be anything. A lot of people are musicians and they are also computer coders or they're also social impact consultants or they're teachers or bakers or like you don't have to like pick a thing anymore. In fact, you shouldn't. You should be looking to diversify your income in case one of them collapses. <laughs> so I think younger generations are very good at that kind of gig economy type thing, but like allowing themselves to really be an original and pursue all their interests, not just think I'm going to be an accountant or something like, yeah, be an accountant, but also be a pottery teacher on the weekends if that's what interests you too. <laughs> I listened to your latest single, Killing Song, and I was wondering if you could tell me how that song came about. Yeah, <laughs> I can tell you. Yeah, I this is like my favorite title of any song. It had a different name and then it, the song was changed in the studio because the pianist was like, <laughs> this is the killing section <laughs> of the song, which you'll understand when you listen to it. And it really does feel like that to perform. It's a super fun one. There's definitely a killing section. It's a killing song. But anyway, it came about, for, it's about the end of a relationship and it's based on truth. I lived up in Harlem until like 2018, I want to say. And the place I lived was full of mice. And at the same time, this relationship I was in was kind of falling apart. And so this song is like a, a play on the, the mice are like the metaphors, are metaphors for the problems in a relationship. And they're often like, you know, they're there, but like, you're like, you tell yourself they're cute, they're harmless. I don't need to deal with them. I don't want to kill them, you know, and often killing the problems in a relationship kills the relationship nine times out of 10. So that's why you don't, that's why you don't address them, but you just kind of know that they're there. And in the end, of course, yeah, you have to deal with them. They shit everywhere. They chew things, they <laughs> break things. And it's, so it's kind of like, it's truth in two kinds of ways. It's a song about mice and they, the mice were real. And so were the problems. <laughs> and it's a song about killing things that need to be killed. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, there's something very symbolic about that. I feel like maybe that was a sign from the universe <laughs> just sending yeah. you all these mice. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They by the time I like dealt with it, they were everywhere. And it's isn't that true of a relationship too? Like by the time you actually are confronting problems, there's so many of them. They're everywhere. And you're like, where do I even start? I'm just, you know, it's yeah, something symbolic as well about mice kind of being. I used to sit in my apartment. And I'd think like, how many mice are in this room with me right now? And I don't even know. Like they could, they could be in the walls, under the beds, in the, they used to be in the cupboard where the towels were. And I would find like mouse droppings, like, oh, oh it was dreadful. It was terrible. But yeah, like be, knowing that you are surrounded by these, these issues and these problems, but you can't even necessarily see them, but you know, they're causing damage <laughs> and you're not quite sure how to fix them. Whole thing is just a metaphor for relationships. Yeah. <laughs> As is most music. I think. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious with that many mice, with that many rodents sort of nesting there, well, what sort of methods did you use to kill them? Did you uh, use like I steel did... wool and have them I, chew on No, them? but they did do steel wool. I lived in a building that had like, what do you call it? They had like a janitorial team. They had like a, you, know, you could call somebody at the front desk to like come and do it. So they tried a bunch of things. I bought those traps, those humane traps that they're supposed to like go in and then it just closes behind them. And then you just very gently take them to the park and set them free. And they did not 
go in the charts. They were not interested. And then the final straw, I was like, you know what? They'll leave. They'll leave on their own or they'll go in the humane charts or whatever. The final straw, the saddest thing happened. I I went away to do a gig. I think I was done. I was gone maybe five days, six days. And on my way out, I had emptied the waste paper basket next to my desk. <laughs> so it was an empty trash can. And uh, the mice used to jump in this trash can. And uh, you would see them from the other side of the room jumping in and out. And of course, they'd jump out and run away by the time you got over to them. But I I came home and at the bottom of this empty trash can was a tiny little baby mouse who'd obviously jumped in, but because I'd emptied the trash can, couldn't climb out again because there was no trash to use to climb out, no paper. So he'd been in there with no food and no water and I thought it was dead. And I was like, oh my God, that's so appallingly sad. Like this little mouse is like, what a horrible way to die, to just have no food and water. And so I went on from the bathroom, I got some like kitchen paper, you know, paper towels. So like, and I was going to dispose of it. And as I picked it up, it moved and this thing was alive, but like barely. And it was like gasping for breath. And I Googled like how to save a mouse. And I... I was, I had a little paintbrush that I was dipping in water and trying to get it to like drink the water and it it died. It, it was alive for like maybe an hour and then it died. And I was like, this is so sad. I need to deal with these mice. So they came and they put the non-humane traps in, the, the not the snap ones, the ones that they like stick to. Mm. And I was like, okay, that's not too bad. Because if they run over it and they stick to the trap, then you can just take them outside and peel them off, right? And let them go. And the first time one was caught on one of the traps, oh my God, the the guy came up, the 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 guy on the you know management team came up to deal with it and he just picked up this trap and went <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh my god. And he's like, no, it's 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 kinder. Trust me, it's kinder. And it was horrible. And but in a few days they were gone after that. Yeah, that's probably also a metaphor. Like me trying to save that little mouse was like <laughs> trying to save. Trying to fix this little problem, like, no, you can live in a relationship. And it's like, no, you've got to let it go. <laughs> yeah. Get rid of these mice. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my traumatic story for you. <laughs> you definitely have a, a more humane way of dealing with mice than I do. I have the electrocution zapper. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> No, I don't mind a mouse. You know, this was always my argument. Like if it was rats, yeah, for sure I would deal with those. But like in the UK, we don't have cockroaches and oh my God, I cannot stand. I would rather have a million mice in my apartment than a single cockroach. I I cannot stand them. So the mice, I was like, nah, mice, like they're little, they're cute, they're harmless, but yeah, they're not. They're not. (laughs) (laughs) And what is oh here's another fun question i'd written down what's one song that always makes you cry when you hear it (laughs) anything about mice no honestly a lot of music makes me cry i'm like a very emotional i feel like i'm one of those people where my my emotions are never like too far from the surface which is sometimes a good thing but not always yeah a lot of music makes me cry usually piano music makes me cry anything by patrick watson if i'm in the right mood can make me cry i discovered on tiktok of all places, the irrepressibles in this shirt when everyone was making those like memes with it about being lost somewhere. They're like, I am lost. <laughs> but if you listen to that whole song, oh my God, it's a deficit. It's a what a, a masterpiece. It's a devastating song to listen to. Alice Smith's I Put a Spell on You 
gets me every time. You know what gets me every time and they play it in Peloton classes? <laughs> it still mm-hmm. makes me sad. It's In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. <laughs> Man, that's such an emotional song. The break day, it gets me every time. It makes me so emotional. And they play it, yeah, in spin classes and you, you have to like channel it into your performance, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god did (laughs) did you hear about that you know about the conspiracy where people are like allegedly in the air tonight is about how he saw a man drowning and blah 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 and i was like that and that's been debunked like that's not true but that whole like store that story quote unquote has basically become a meme now and there are even people who will, will joke about it when they're like how did this Tyler, the creator song get written? Well, some say it's about him watching a man drowning. <laughs> I mean, there's that line in it, isn't there? When when you saw I was drowning, you did not lend a hand. It's as, as far as I know, I think from watching an interview with him, it's about his wife cheated on him. And it's mm-hmm. about that. that yeah, dude. yeah, that's yeah. yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the actual origin story. Yeah. You you need to look up. I mean, that song is amazing. However, you listen to it, and it needs to like you need to listen to it in headphones, kind of song. But any live performance of that song, there's some I've, I've seen him play it at like Wembley Arena type, you know, huge huge outdoor concert, and it's just him on a piano, and he just plays chords, and it's still as like moving as the full production one. And then when he does it with the band, he usually plays kit. So like I love it. I love seeing singers do that. Anderson Pack does that. Marcus Mumford does that as well. Singers that can play drums while they're singing. I'm always so impressed. But yeah, Phil Collins, he plays kit and sings in the live versions. And it's just like some of the rawest like human emotion I think I've ever witnessed in music. <laughs> yeah. There's this band I really love. They're like an indie rock band based in Brooklyn called Hello Mary. And one of their lead vocalists, Stella, plays Kit while singing. And it's always so important. It's so cool to see that because it requires so much stamina to do. Yeah. And just rhythm. like And, and timing. Rhythm. I'm like, I'm the kind of person because I'm so bad at piano. I get out of time with myself while I'm trying to sing and play. Imagine if you're the one responsible for keeping time and you're singing. Yeah, man, it's a level of skill that's above me. (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure. And (laughs) I, yeah. And also with drumming, like not only are you keeping time, but it requires so much like left brain coordination where it's just yeah. like you have to have remember to have one hand doing this and on what the other hand doing a completely different <laughs> rhythm i have infinite respect for people who like are able to do that so seamlessly yeah i feel the same way about choreography like i feel like it's very rare to witness somebody you can see amazing choreography and amazing dancers and then you see amazing singers but it's very rare to witness somebody that can dance and sing very emotively at the same time. And it's almost because, or in a, in a choreographed routine anyway, because you're like, you're, you're right. It's like a left brain, right brain thing. It's, it often ends up looking, if you're singing and performing a choreographed routine, it just looks choreographed, which is cool, but like not, it doesn't have that like raw emotive vibe that that the same kind of expressive vibe 
that a non-choreographed routine has. Right. Usually. <laughs> oh, I totally forgot to say my crying song. Yes. My- what is it? <laughs> I would say mine is, there's a lot that make me cry, but I would say my go-to right now is Dance With My Father by Luther Vandross. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, damn. Yeah. And I, I reckon anything can make you cry if you have the right associations to it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's like, and even if it's like, even if you grow up and realize it's the cringiest thing ever now, like that, that, that associate, that nostalgic, I guess, tie you have to it can really just like transcend all of that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Isn't that funny how as well you said my go-to, isn't that funny how we have a go-to or we have go-to music for being sad? I know I disagree with this with some friends on this because some I have some friends that are like, oh, when I'm sad, I want to listen to happy music. I want to take my mind off things. I'm like, really? When I'm sad, I want to like just bathe in the sadness. You know, like <laughs> I want to listen to the saddest playlist. I want to, when I'm crying, especially like really allow myself to just be sad and like wallow in it for a bit. Maybe that's not very healthy. Maybe that's why I have depression, but <laughs> there's that kind of seeking out having a go-to like oh I want to feel sadness I'm going to go listen to this song and that's going to allow me to feel sadness why would we do that and that interesting mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah I think it's really I think it's like there's a degree of self-awareness where like if where, where you can really allow yourself to like tap into what you're feeling that way it's very cathartic to do yeah yeah it's cathartic exactly like I still listen to a lot of emo right now, like when I'm feel when I'm really in my feelings and stuff like that. And because I have that, I guess I feel like where something we lose, like after we're done with puberty, is like that that ability to like. I think there's strength in being able to tap back into that pure teenage <laughs> angst. Who is that for you? Mine's probably Evanescence. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. My, mine right now, like when I was a kid, I was obsessed with a lot of the, the mall goth culture and stuff like that. So I was really into obviously like MCR, but, <laughs> but right now, whenever I'm feel, whenever I'm in my feelings, I always, I feel like my go-to is taking back Sunday, a decade under the influence, cute without the E, all the, just play, playing all the hits. Those are, <laughs> I've always loved taking back Sunday. And I think that, um, and I think they're playing like sad summer fest this year or something. I think they're headlining, but if they, if I ever got the chance to go to riot fest and they were on the bill, I would go see them like without hesitation. Yeah. <laughs> Sad Summerfest. I haven't heard of that, but it sounds amazing. Yeah. And what would you say, as I guess before we wrap up, what would you say gives you the most hope for the future when it comes to just, I guess, being a performer and sort of navigating this crazy world that we live in? Mm, That's a big question. There's a great, he's been on my mind because he just announced a new album yesterday, Hosier, that you probably know from Take Me to Church. He has this great song that's based on a talk about the universe ending, the inevitable end of the universe. Uh, what, is it, what is the song called? No Plan. 
it has the, this line, there will be darkness again. There's no plan. There's no, there's no race to be run. Like, and I think that idea that ultimately none of this matters is actually quite liberating. <laughs> Anything we we do in this life, you know, at best, you kind of can hope to be remembered for a couple thousand years. Wouldn't that be amazing? But really a thousand years to the perspective of the universe is the blink of an eye. Millions and millions of years have passed and millions more years probably will, whether Earth is here or not. And ultimately, you are a speck of dust on a speck of dust. And that should be liberating. What better reason than to just be 100% yourself and do what you want to do in the unique way that only you can do it while you're here. So that's probably Absolutely. like, quite, yeah, an, a pessimistic, seemingly pessimistic view of hope for the future <laughs> but yeah i feel like there's also like an undeniable comfort in that that ultimately it, none of this matters yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's a great it's a very that a song no plan is like a very upbeat song it's not a sad song yeah it's a great song <laughs> no. it's genuinely like a an uplifting it's like a kind of fuck it song <laughs> Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, it's like this all will end. And therefore, like, enjoy being alive, man. You're here now, you know? Oh. It's funny, he just announced his new album and it's called something like Everything Ends. And I'm like, oh, I wonder if that's more along the same vibe because that would be a great, like, theme for an album. <laughs> Absolutely. And do you have anything else you would like to shamelessly plug or announce? Yes, shamelessly. I, I can announce that Killing Song is out on Thursday next week, March 2nd, on all streaming platforms, wherever you get your music. And my previous single that just came out, Make Them Jealous, is also anywhere you get music. And there's an after hours version of that that I'd really love people to listen to. And there's a music video which was filmed in this amazing building and social trades club in Nottingham in the UK and features a bunch of my amazing friends and is just hilarious. And I think people should go watch it <laughs> and give it a thumbs up. Yeah, it's it was a, a very it was a really fun project to make. And I think it's resulted in like a really that is a song that like if you listen to the lyrics, it's quite sad, but it's an extremely uplifting, funky song to listen to. And very different from Killing Song. So check out both. Thank you. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me for a chat. I had a blast. Same. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Sounding Out with Izzy, and thank you again to Reagan Seeley for joining me today. Remember to subscribe and sign up for the mailing list on my YouTube channel and written blog, both under the name A Girl's Two Sound Sense. Give the podcast a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're interested, consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com backslash a girl's two sound sense. That's girl with three R's and no I. Thank you so much for listening, and I will catch you in the next episode of Sounding Out with Izzy.